they've taken uh, the message of the gospel and in two different places Peter's preached sermons and communicated the truth about Christ's resurrection and uh, has faced pushback and adversity uh, following that and uh, this is the latest example of it where the Sadducees and the uh, religious leaders that we talked about last week whose motives were clearly uh, not to honor and please God. They had a different motive, which we said was like control, manipulation, uh, power, which is what religion is when it goes poorly. So they they have faced the, this um, being detained overnight. It's a precursor because worse things are coming for Peter and John. But they go back to the assembly to their own companions, it says, and they give a report of what's happened, and that's what we see in this passage, is that in the face of uh, pressure and adversity, they had to decide how to respond. What is my reaction to be? And so the message today shows us the response that they had in three uh, kind of movements that we can see. And um, so I thought about that, and this week I'd read an article that some other uh, pastors I have a lot of pastor friends uh, from doing ministry a long time, and especially because the last uh, ministry position that I had before coming here was working with churches, 36 churches, one uh, network where, <clears throat> excuse me, my primary friendships were among pastors and leaders. My job was to have friendships with them, but it was also my inclination Okay, so, you know, you see what people are experiencing sometimes as they try to lead, and the culture has changed so quickly in our days, and churches are experiencing so much difficulty in our time. This pastor's name is Andrew Lang. He wrote an article called Why I Left the Church, and a bunch of people are passing it around in this past week. If you didn't see it, it's probably because your circle is just a little different, but almost all my pastor friends read it and were talking about it, and I was talking about it with some pastor friends in a thread uh, where, you know, this person after ministering to what was, from the outside it looked like a successful church, decided I can't do this anymore. I've reached the limit of my goodwill toward vocational ministry, and he preached his last sermon and quit ministry. And so in the article, which is lengthy, uh, and if you wanted to read it, you could go see it. It's called Why I Left the Church. Andrew Lang is the writer. He he uh, talks at length about the things that made it so difficult for him that he said, I'm not going to do this anymore. I'm not going to... For him, he he had. I'll let you read it if you care to. But many pastors, uh, when I read what was you could see on social media this past week, a lot of the pastors that I know, I saw people share it and say, "I identify with this guy's frustration." That's what some people said, and others felt that it's what you sign on for, and you better learn how to navigate your vocation with healthy goals. Boundaries and personal commitments, that's how, that's how I feel, okay? When you sign up to be a pastor, when you answer that call, you realize that there are things about it that are going to be difficult. I think about that sometimes. Is it harder than anybody else's job? Probably not. Probably not. Your hard, uh, job is probably hard too. 
But there are aspects of it that are unique and different, and you don't punch out and leave it, I can tell you that much. A lot of people in ministry will tell you that. You live with it all the time. But I think about the threats that come to us in ministry, but not just for pastors, just for us as the church, the things that we face. They were threatened, shut up, stop talking about Jesus, or worse things are going to happen to you than just being detained overnight. They knew that was what was coming. So when I think about us, we experience threats sometimes as well, and we have to think about how do we respond? How do we respond when we feel like, okay, we know that there's one important thing that God has has done, and that is to send Jesus into the world to rescue, redeem. Jesus is resurrected. Jesus is alive. We are Christians living out our faith in a culture that's not always necessarily friendly to it. What are we going to face, and what's our response going to be? So three th- you know, aspects, ways they responded in this passage that I think we'll see that can help us as we live our own faith out. First, they understood the threat. So if I'm, which I am, a follower of Jesus in a difficult era, and I read an article earlier, I wanted to read all of it, but it had a paywall. <laughs> and I'm like, I'm not paying 90 bucks a year to read The Atlantic. I'd like to, but I'm not going to. But I did see the first paragraph that said over the last 20 or so years, 14 million people have stopped professing Christ and attending church. Or maybe they still attend, uh, profess Christ, but they don't attend church. 12% of U.S. Americans, that's how much that added up to. In the two paragraphs I read before, I said I'm not paying for this article. It was interesting. I may go back and try to find it somewhere else. But 14 million people over the last 20 years have opted out of participation in local churches. And so we think about the threats that we face. I think are different in a culture like ours. In a time like ours, there's something specific to this era that's going to make it harder on us as we try to follow Jesus in our own time. But the apostles' threat was obvious. It was external too. You know, I think when I assess our threats, they're not, the external ones are not the biggies. Although, you know, uh, Frankie and I have been talking about United Methodists and what they're going through. If you read it all, you see that like they're going through a very, very difficult time because they're trying to decide about human sexuality and the way it's going to impact their ministry. And United Methodists overall have said, we're going to be inclusive and we, we are, to me, going to take a, well, definitely, we're going to walk away from biblical fidelity. And so they're experiencing a crisis that's based on uh, deviating from biblical fidelity. And... We think about the, the nature of the times that we're in. Churches make decisions. That's an external threat. We assess the culture and we go, okay, uh, if we are going to be faithful to what the Bible says about marriage and r- relationships, then it may be costly. And, but we count the cost and assume it. In, but it's an external threat. It's because the culture's given us pressure to deviate from biblical truth and reality. But I think most of the threats that we face in churches now are internal threats. Internal. 
They, it's not outside. It's like our posture, our decisions, our reaction, our faithfulness to Christ. And I want to talk about some of those threats as I understand them. You could make your own list, and it might look different than this one. The first one is individualism. I joked around, I made a post on Facebook yesterday that Christians are like Alka-Seltzers. I'd been thinking about that one for a long time. It's like an Alka-Seltzer. If you, I used to routinely overeat. That's how I got so familiar with Alka-Seltzers. Like, do you want to sleep? If you want to sleep and you routinely overeat, you will get familiar with the Alka-Seltzer. You, you take it out. It's in this little contained package. You drop it into water. It dissolves. It stops being this hard little tablet and it gives itself away to the greater good of bringing relief to your stomach so you can sleep. That's the analogy. And I think individualism, it's like Christians have to be like the Alka-Seltzer. You decide, I'm going to come out of this safe place. I'm going to introduce myself into a another environment, I'm going to, in some sense, lose myself. It's like you are an individual. That's true. You have interests and preferences. You like different music than somebody else does or programs or fiction or literature, whatever. You are an individual, but when we come to Christ, there's a sense in which we give ourselves away to relieve the pain of others, to be involved in the lives of others in a way that we sort of dissolve into the bigger thing. And and the problem a lot of times with people now is like we decide I'm going to keep being this individual. I'm not going to give myself to others. I'm not going to give myself to the greater good. So when I assess the threats, that's one of the things I see is like we... Individualism is like so out of control, you know, for us that we can't be part of a community, a body. We don't identify with uh, the body in a healthy enough way so that we think about giving ourselves a way to relieve the pain of each other as an aspect of it anyway. And I think about what they did is that they reported, and then the second thing we'll see in a minute is that they prayed, but they reported first, and they talked about their weakness. But one of the weaknesses we might confess is in the area of prayer. You know, their first impulse after they faced a threat was to gather and pray with others. And, you know, prayer meeting is almost like a, it's a thing of the past for so many churches now, but it's such a healthy practice to gather with other people to pray Uh, we used to have midweek prayer times where you'd gather in circles and pray or you know but I know that there are two levels to this one is that you as a person individual hopefully have a life of prayer before God you're learning how to set aside time to pray and engage God in prayer but another part of it is definitely that we ought to practice corporate prayer where we're together and praying We used to uh, have sometimes in churches things, I I don't mean just to walk through nostalgia, but cottage prayer meetings. We'd go to people's homes and we would pray together, usually because the church was having a special event that they called revival in the past. You had a, a series of meetings where people were willing to come together, hear the Bible proclaim, be challenged to, to, uh, you know, maybe elevate our faith and be serious about our discipleship. 
But praying together is a big important practice that we could see it had importance to them. And so we're going to talk all about prayer in a minute. But I think as we assess the threats, one of the threats that we're always going to see in local churches, is our prayer adequate? Is your life of prayer adequate? Is, is our life together pray, of prayer adequate? One of the decisions that our deacons, or not our deacons, our elders made recently a, after uh, reading a book called, about being an elder was like we're going to have an elders meeting on the second and fourth Thursday. And the second Thursday is exclusively for prayer, exclusively for prayer. We may decide at some point, hey, let's open this up for everybody. But right now, our elders have said, we realize that we need to pray together. And so, you know, when we think about what are the threats that face us, they went back, they report that, hey, this is what's happened to us. What are our threats? I think about, you know, it's hard to change the, the outside world. It is. There's all kinds of things around us we can't control, but what we most need to address is our own internal inclination to sinfulness and to our flesh. You know, that is what we can address. And I can't change the whole world. I can change me. I can change how I respond to life and God. What about the threat of apathy? I'm thinking about all our internal uh, threats. Is our passion for Christ consistent with the, what the Psalms say about God? That what is the what do the Psalms say? He is great and greatly to be praised. Great and greatly to be praised. Apathy is a word that means basically no passion. That's what the word means. So when we think about God's greatness. Is the, is the impact on us consistent with our understanding of who he is? That's the, the, the passion that we should have for who God is and who Christ is, our love relationship with him we talked about before. What about how we view the church? Is I think, okay, assessing our threats. How do we view the church? Too often people think of it as a product to be consumed rather than a family to which we belong or a movement in which we participate. We think of it as a product to be consumed, not a family to which we belong or a movement in which we participate. That's what this is. When you see the church in the New Testament, what do you see? You see a movement that people are participating in. It wasn't, they didn't, we have in North America, of course, a consumer you know, mindset. It's been true for quite a long time. But if we wanted to have a healthy shift in our own thinking, we would grow to see that, yeah, there, there are aspects of uh, what church means to me personally, but also what is my contribution? How is it that, that God is using my life among the lives of the other people that I'm in connection with and in fellowship with? I think, I've, and I've thought this a lot of times, I haven't said it out loud that often, that sometimes we think of church as a hobby. People have a church hobby is the way I've said it. It sounds a little mean to say it out loud. But the difference is I've got golf clubs in my uh, garage and they have sawdust and other dust on them. Occasionally I take them out and uh, play bad golf with them. 
If so, if you ever asked me to go play golf with you, it, it would be okay sometimes, but mostly not. Why? Because I don't, it's not a hobby that I like, I do all the time. And I think sometimes that's how modern people think about the church. It's like a hobby. I'll do it sometimes. I don't do it all the time. And by the way, that's an unhealthy way of thinking about what community is. And it's a threat to vitality and flourishing. So that's why I said it out loud. Church is integral to God's purposes in the world. It is a basic way that God has committed himself to having a coherent, tangible presence, a mission, movement. That, that's what God is up to in the church. That's why it was in his mind and heart. That's why Jesus said to Peter, when Peter said, he said, who do people say I am? And Peter said, you're the Christ. He says, you're right, flesh and blood didn't reveal this to you. He says, you're Peter, and on this rock, that confession of him being Christ, he says, I will build my church. My church. Church has always been in God's mind and heart for the blessing of the world. It's an institution. In a sense, people are like, I don't like to think of it as an institution. It is because it is a bedrock way that God wants to make the world better. So we think about what's a threat to us. Not thinking correctly about what the church is is, is a big threat. It's not something we take or leave. It's integral to what God is doing in the world. And it begins with us and our availability. Even though Isaiah didn't feel worthy. Think about Isaiah in chapter 6 where he encounters God and he has this vision of God and uh, God says, who will go for us and who shall I send? Do you remember what Isaiah says? Even though he had already said, woe is me because I'm a man of unclean lips and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. He said, here am I, send me, sign me up. This person who felt completely unworthy also made himself available. And that's what it's like to walk with Jesus a lot of the time. We're like, I don't feel worthy. I don't feel adequate for this. But we still say yes, and God ends up using us in spite of our inadequacy and our unworthy feelings. Almost everybody, you know, many of the people that we see in the Bible, like Moses, didn't feel worthy. Jeremiah, I'm too young. I mean, we've seen all this. Most of the people that God ends up using are people that didn't think they could be used, thought they had some defect that that disqualified them and made them feel, you know, unworthy. And most of it's like Paul when he talks about his thorn in the flesh in 2 Corinthians chapter 12. And and he comes to realize, no, it's actually in my defectiveness and in my weakness and brokenness that God, God's strength is able to shine through. God's grace is able to be powerful. If we just say yes, if we just become available. What about the threat of keeping our lives and playing it safe? What does Jesus say about that? For whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life because of me, he says, will find it. You know, we want to save our life. We want to keep it for the things that we want. We think, well, this is where real happiness is. But what we find out is that, no, when we follow Christ as a disciple and we obey him, we step into freedom. We step into the the life that we were designed to live. And just 
being available. Whoever tries to keep his life, though, the Bible says he'll lose it eventually. You may not lose it immediately. You lose yourself. That's what it's saying. The self that God wants you to be, you won't have access to. And that's the best self. The self God wants you to be is the best one. It's the one we want access to, and the way that we get it is by giving our life away. Surrender. Surrender. Uh, There's this old comic strip that uh, the person said, we've seen the enemy, and he is us. We've seen the enemy, and he is us. That's what I think. I think the threat that we experience most often isn't out there in the world. It's right here in us and in our hearts and our, our willingness to say yes. Charlie Peacock, I love this one album that he um, had out in the 90s. And, uh, one of the lyrics in one of the songs says, the, the album's called Everything That's On My Mind. I just thought it was really well done all the way around. Great musicianship and writing, great lyrics. He says, the world outside don't pose no threat like the darkness in our hearts. He's just quoting scripture where Jesus says um, about people that the lamp is... Uh, uh, light into our soul and he says if the light in you is darkness how great is that darkness uh, there's uh, light that God puts in us but we need to live as people of light so that's the first thing they assess the threat they, and then secondly in the passage we see they address it to God in prayer they don't stop with just a diagnosis they move on to prayer because prayer is how God works in the world it's part of how God is committed to work among us. And so prayer is the expression of a united community. We see that it it says, uh, look at the scripture there again in verse number 24. When they had heard that, they raised their voice to God. How? With one accord. They were together in prayer. And they, different uh, translations, one will say wonderful harmony is what they had among them. All the believers lifted their voice together in prayer to God. And so as I was reading, I thought about great people of prayer. John Bunyan, who wrote Pilgrim's Progress. I don't know if you've ever read Pilgrim's Progress. Great, great book that every Christian should read at some point. It describes the Christian life. It uses the analogy of a journey and all kinds of people that he encounters along the way. But Bunyan was also a great uh, pastor. He spent time incarcerated at a time when it was uh, unpopular to step away from uh, expressions of Christianity that government didn't approve. Uh, And John Bunyan uh, said about prayer, you can do more than pray after you've prayed, but you can't do more than pray until you've prayed. He recognized that prayer is the way that God brings his blessing into your activity. That's uh, so how we discover God's will. I, I wrote down uh, this morning thinking about what prayers. I think prayer is faith plus a biblical imagination plus commitment and obedience. That's what prayer is. It's, it's faith because we believe that God will do what he said he would do if we pray. It's having a biblical imagination because I think what limits most people and keeps us from praying is we don't have a biblical imagination. 
We don't think about God in a way that frees us to be able to pray. Most people would say, I've got all these distractions and limits and hindrances when I pray. Well, we, what's the guy's name? I can't remember the pastor's name, but he said we need to be in the school of prayer. There's a school that you go to that God is constantly teaching us how to do it so that we develop a biblical imagination that allows us to engage with God as we pray. So faith and biblical imagination and commitment and obedience because God's told you to pray. People ought always to pray and never give up, Jesus says. So we pray. We recognize that this is how God is working. Uh, Hudson Taylor, one of the greatest biographies I ever read and it's been a long time ago, was about Hudson Taylor. He was a missionary to China. He uh, formed a ministry called China Inland Mission. And he uh, went to China when it was re- really difficult, probably it would still be so, to, to do that. And he adapted his dress to native, uh, the native dress. He decided, I'm going to be a true missionary. I'm going to immerse myself in this culture and learn the, these people and their ways and their language. And I'm not going to go try to impress uh, some Western idea onto their culture and make them conform to me. I'm going to go love these people and live among them. And he was a great man of prayer. And he was a person that God greatly used in his, his day. And he said, prayer power has never been tried to its full capacity. If we want to see mighty wonders of divine power and grace wrought in the place of weakness, failure and disappointment, let us answer God's standing challenge. Call unto me and I will answer you and show you great and mighty things that you do not know. Jeremiah 33.3 is what he was quoting. He says, we don't reach the potential that is available to us if we will avail ourselves to prayer. That's what he's saying. Call to me. God has told us, call to me, and I'll answer you and show you great and mighty things you don't know. In other words, God says, I know, and I'll show you if you ask me. That's what he tells us. And so Hudson Taylor said, there's this potential that we're not, we're not reaching because we have to learn how to interrupt ourselves and, and spend this time. That's what it is, right? It's time. It's being able to uh, connect with God and, and have that discipline. But also their prayer acknowledge God as creator. And that's important when we read the passage. We, that's part of what they said when they voiced their prayer. Uh, Lord, you're God who made heaven and earth and sea and all that's in them, who by the mouth of your servant David, he starts to quote a psalm there, but it, they recognize that God is the creator And that's important because they saw him as their source. Not just as like my hands out source. You know, although we're told to bring our petitions and our concerns to God and he'll he'll fill our hand and he'll meet our need. But also they recognize when we say that God is our source, that means also he's the one that designed the world. He's the one that uh, shows us what its purposes are. He's the one that has a plan that we're following because he's the master and he's the Lord. Creator means he made a good world, but it also means that he's the one that has decided about what the world is and what it means. So when they recognize him as creator, they're saying, you're the master. They didn't think of their lives as belonging to themselves. That's interesting because it's true. We are God's possession. He purchased us. Don't you know, Paul says, that you were bought at a price and you're not your own? You don't belong to yourself? The beautiful truth is we belong to God. We're his possession. 
we belong, I like that word, you know. It's like, you remember being a kid on the school schoolyard, if you weren't athletic, you might get picked last or you not get picked at all when it came time to play kickball or volleyball or whatever. You might feel left out. That, the idea is in the Bible about what it means to belong, you don't get left out. You're not left out. You're included, loved, valued. That's how God sees us. They belong, but they also were his possession. We belong to him in that sense, that we, he possesses us. And so we give up our right to live a self-directed life. You could say that every Sunday it would be no less true and no, no less needed. When we say yes to Jesus, we are giving up our right to live a self-directed life. He's the, he's the Lord. He's our master. So when they recognize him as creator, I think that's partly what they see. Prayer expresses trust in God's plan. They go back to what's happening. They, they read the current events like they're reading the, uh, the scripture, like they're reading their own current events because they are. They, we looked at this passage a few weeks back. I know I hardly remember what I preach week to week, so I don't expect you to remember necessarily either. But in Psalm chapter 2, we saw it. it says, why did the nations rage? Why did the people plot vain things? And why did they scheme to overthrow God's anointed? And they go, aha, we just lived through this a few months ago. This is Pilate. These are our leaders that the scripture is talking about. They see that there's a plan that God's working. That brings us so much comfort and encouragement when the world feels so confusing to know, no, God has a plan. We just have to get in the stream of it and be involved with God and what he's doing in the world. They could see that God was at work in their world. Then there's this bent toward opposing God that's always going to be present with people. I told Cody, like we paid for a Facebook ad for the children's thing that we're uh, launching on Wednesday next week. This coming Wednesday at 6, six o'clock. Pizza, games, kids. What is it about paid ads that attract, you know, like people that this guy starts commenting on it? Blasphemy, mean, hateful, hateful, hateful stuff. So, you know, I see it block it, hide it, eventually have to ban him because he starts sending these terrible, terrible uh, instant messages to our church messenger, and uh, it's like demonic and hateful, and when you read this passage, you know what you see is that it's just the fact that Satan hates God's truth. Satan hates God's Christ. Satan hates God's plan. The Bible says about Jesus, he, he says, he says the uh, adversary comes to steal and to kill and to destroy, but I've come that they might have life and have it to the full. So we think about Jesus is talking about Satan. He says he was a liar from the very first, and he's the father of lies. He's a murderer. So when I, I look at, you know, what it got expressed in that guy's heart this week, you're like, this does not surprise me. It does not surprise me because it's the way that the world is aligned against the Christ, the scripture says, against God's anointed. And yet the disciples were able to say, we choose to honor him and to follow him. And a prerequisite to experience, experiencing God is to uh, have this clear sense of how he is at work in the world, to care. A.W. A. Tozer has this great uh, saying, He's, and it's so simple. He says, God tells the man who cares. That's, he wrote a whole uh, essay about it. 
Tozer, God tells the man who cares. And all he's saying is that if you want to know what God is up to, God is not going to hide it from you. If you want to see how God is at work, if you want to join God where he's at work, all you have to do is care. All you have to do is open your eyes. All you have to do is move in God's direction. And they do. They see that God is at work. They saw that there was opposition. They said, we're still going to keep doing what we do. I saw an article this week. I didn't read the whole thing. Some of it, because it wasn't behind a paywall. Scientists discover pure math is written into evolutionary genetics was the title of the article. I already knew what it was about. (laughs) Scientists discover pure math is written into evolutionary genetics. I thought, well, there you go. There's a pattern that is intricate and purposeful, but the only thing they can think to do is to describe it in naturalistic terms. They say, okay, inside of creation, inside of DNA, inside of genetics, we see a very clear pattern. We see detailed things. Everywhere else we observe that, we think, well, somebody's behind that, but no, not in this case. And I thought that's just how the world is aligned. There are people that want to glorify God, that want to see God, that want to be a part of what God is doing. And there are people that no matter how strong and powerful the evidence they're presented with is, they will still say, no, thank you. And so with the disciples, we see that they commit themselves to God's plan, to God's purpose. Humanism, it it makes man, my pastor used to say this all the time, humanism is making man the measure of all things. Humanism. I thought, well, have you looked at humans lately? Anybody that, you know, poses humanism as a workable philosophy? Have you seen what people are up to in the world? I think if if so, we might want to slow down in thinking that man could be the pinnacle of everything. And when we think about how to respond in prayer, pray for boldness, not relief. That's what they did. They could have said, God, we're tired already of this adversity we're tired already of this pressure we're tired already of being harassed a bunch of these people are going to lose their lives in this story a bunch of these people are going to lose their jobs and their homes and they're going to move hundreds of miles from where they live because of the persecution that they're under and they could have prayed God just get us out from under this pressure but that's not what they prayed what they prayed is God give us boldness to be your people in the midst of a culture that is pushing back against us. They asked for strength not to shy away from the difficult parts of what it means to follow Jesus. Isn't that a good prayer? They said, God, give us strength not to shy away from the difficult parts of what it means to follow Jesus. The other aspect of their how how they responded to what what was happening in this threat was that they committed. We're going to join God at work. So here's how God responds. Is, uh, this is a powerful uh, aspect of this passage. When they prayed, the place where they were assembled together was shaken. They were filled with the Holy Spirit, and they spoke the word of God with boldness. So they joined God where he's at work in the world. And so he fills them and he, he will fill us we think about what the Bible teaches about the Holy Spirit it says in the Bible that anyone who belongs to God the reason that you do what makes that true is the Holy Spirit is taking his residence up inside of you 
He has come to live in you. He animates this old dead person. Uh, That's what it means to be born again. The Spirit of God comes and he makes his home inside of us. But the Bible says in Ephesians 5.18, go on being filled with the Holy Spirit. So even though the Holy Spirit indwells us always, he does not fill us always. The, The way that a person is filled with the Spirit is through confession of sin, yielding ourselves to God, praying and asking God to fill us, confessing all known sin, being willing to forsake it, asking God, yielding ourselves to God. It's deliberate. So a Christian can be, a Christian will be indwelt by the Spirit of God. To be filled with the Holy Spirit is deliberate. It's something that we pray and ask, ask him to do, and he fills them with his spirit, and we need to be filled because the spirit is the one who informs all the things we know about his character. He guides, he teaches, he helps, he comforts, he empowers, giving us insight into God's word and mind that we can, uh, it turns into wisdom in our situations as we apply it and live it out. What we don't want is to be limited by our own mere resources and human limits. So this is a supernatural life, right? That's what the Bible says about it. Supernatural. It can be. It should be. But it depends on our being filled, yielding, experiencing God's life to the fullest in the way that he intends. So it's part of our discipleship. He fills us. He encourages us. When we pray, as they prayed, he encouraged them. I'll, this is so interesting. The place where they were assembled together was shaken, it says. I think about that. What does that mean? When you look at the word closely in the original language, it means shaken. That's what it means. No, Nothing else I could find. That, but I thought about what does that mean, the idea of uh, it being shaken. There are different ways to think about that. Have you ever had a sobering experience, maybe a near miss in a car? You're driving a car. Like we were driving on I-95 one time when we lived in Wake Forest, North Carolina. Been on uh, home in Augusta for the holidays, driving back to school. It's raining. And you know how I-95 will sometimes just inexplicably come to a dead stop? And this happened in the rain. And I hit the brakes really hard and... Then I thought, oh, wait, that's not what you should do. I let my foot off of everything, and we had to get onto the median. Didn't spin, roll, nothing terrible happened, but it scared me, you know. It scared me with my whole family in there, us uh, going back. Sometimes we ha- we're shaken, we're sobered, we're able to uh, have a healthy kind of panic. But the kind of shaking that the scripture talks about here, I think, is that it shakes, this is how Rich Mullins put it, shakes us forward, he says, and shakes us free. Shakes us forward and shakes us free. It's a a healthy disturbance. That's what I think they had, a healthy disturbance. Would it hurt the church to have a healthy disturbance? Of course not. That would be awesome. If we left out of here feeling like, you know what happened today is I was shaken forward and free into what God, his purpose in this world is. I preached on a mission trip one time. We went to uh, several summers in a row. uh, We went to Rochester, New York, which is a good place to be in the summer. 
because uh, you don't even need air conditioning there. It would get to be like 40 at night. Made a day trip to Niagara Falls and stuff like that. But we were helping several churches there. And they took us out on a Sunday and was way out. I couldn't take you there again if my life depended on it. And I preached in this little church. And afterward, a lady came up to me, a lady, and she said, that was an expiring message. And I thought, well, I hope you meant inspiring, you know. But that's what we need, I think, is something uh, to inspire us toward this mission that God's called us to. Nothing wrong with leaving church feeling built up and inspired and shaken into what God's purposes are. And he used them. I remember, uh, you know, I've been in ministry for like 30 years. You go through different leadership things. I remember there was an era where everything was about a personal mission statement. You need a personal mission statement, you know. And so you would do all these little cohorts and stuff trying to learn your personal mission statement. And uh, it was people like Stephen Covey and uh, Aubrey Malfurus and John Maxwell, uh, leadership ideas. But I think a very fundamental idea of what a person's mission in life entails is just to determine that we want to be used by God. If we wake up each day and say, like Isaiah, here am I, send me. I'm available. I want to be used for your purposes. Then God is going to use us. And we'll have a very clear and obvious mission that uh, God has given to us. I, I thought about this passage in 2 Corinthians chapter uh, 4, verses 7 through 9. It says, We have this treasure in earthen vessels, that the excellence of the power may be of God and not of us. I think it's such a powerful uh, passage. We have this treasure. The treasure's not us. We're just these old clay vessels, jars of clay, that, that he puts a treasure into so that it's obvious the treasure is not me. The treasure is inside of me. But that treasure is a resource that we can access and use. And the, and the scripture describes a situation like theirs. We're hard-pressed on every side, yet not crushed. Perplexed, but not in despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. You know, I think about the pastor that quit and how many times, you know, I, I can tell you it's like a sub you know, idea among pastors. They say, don't ever resign on a Monday. <laughs> That's what pastors say among themselves. Don't ever resign on a Monday. Why? Because they know that there are going to be some tough Sundays. That's why. So don't resign on a Monday. And don't quit. And, and as, of course, I'm not preaching to pastors. I'm just preaching to all of us. And, and the reality is there are going to be times when it feels difficult to do what we're doing and what we're called to do together. Two verses that God has given me in my life that have sustained me in my calling particularly. One is that the scripture says, let us not grow weary in well-doing for in due time, in due season, we'll reap if we don't quit. In other words, you don't put a seed in the ground and look for a crop tomorrow. That's foolish. You know, I'm not very good at growing things anyway, but, like, I've tried to grow tomatoes and stuff, and I am impatient as a human and just as a rule. But, like, you just know that you can't plant a seed and expect it to grow up immediately. It takes time. And so perspective sometimes for ourselves to go, it's okay to have bad days some days. It's okay that it's going to take a long time for a character in life to be formed in us fully in the way that God intends, but stick with it. 
at the right time, the Bible says we'll reap if we don't lose heart. If we don't faint, if we don't quit. So that's one verse. And the other one is 1 Corinthians 15, 58. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. No matter what our feelings tell us sometimes, the be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor in the Lord, however you feel about it, is not in vain. We just need sometimes to be quiet and let God speak into us and show us what, what it is that's really going on. Any difficulty we face is temporary compared to the weight of glory and the experience of God and eternity. Any frustration, any opposition, any adversity will be worth it when we're face-to-face with Christ our Savior. His mission is worth it. It's a simple mission statement that we have. God, use us so that we might glorify you. That's basically it. Most of the threats we face in our culture are what we would we have called soft persecution, right? It's soft persecution, hurt feelings. Nobody's arresting us. Nobody's disrupting our worship. Nobody's saying, you can't do that. It's soft persecution. But the most of the challenges that we face in a time like this in a season like ours in our uh, very wealthy North American world are going to be internal uh, challenges that we face. We've seen the enemy and often it's us. It's us. So God help us to get out of your way. That's a good prayer. Give us courage to stand up to that most threatening enemy, our flesh. I want to pray for us, and we're going to have a time uh, now that we can pray. I encourage you if there's a need for prayer. I know uh, often, you know, there, if you want to come and pray during this time, I'll be happy to, to pray with you or some other time as God is speaking to you. But let's stand together now. We're going to have a prayer, and we'll conclude our our time this morning. God, thank you so much for the witness of the early church and what you show us in their behavior that uh, they were people like us and yet they kept their eyes on you they persevered even though at times it seemed really difficult to do what they were doing they didn't lose sight of the fact that you were worth it you're worth it lord you're worthy 